Let's open our Bibles, if we could, to John chapter 20. This last Friday, we celebrated Good Friday, and it's Good Friday because uh, of what happened on that day. It's good for us. It was the most difficult and the most horrible experience for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But we know that as he, uh, it says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and he, he despised the shame, but he, he knew the end of it. He knew that as a result of his death on the cross, there would be a great number of people who would be able to share in glory with him, with his Father. And so that to me is the thing that I believe the Lord was had on his heart as he hung on that cross and, and again, the brutality of it, we, we looked at that this last Friday, two days ago. Even though it was so brutal, yet the most important part of that whole thing uh, was what happened behind the scenes, again, that nobody could see. Because the Bible says in uh, Isaiah 53 that Jesus made his soul an atonement for our sin. And so that's something that nobody could do because many people had been crucified, but only Jesus, the very God in human flesh, was able to take that punishment for us because of his holy standard. And so we thank him for that. And we looked at that Thursday, or I'm sorry, this last Friday. But today we know that is is the we celebrate him rising from the grave on the third day. On the third day. So it has been said that the entire structure of the Christian faith rests on the foundation of the resurrection. And that is true. It is the keystone. It's the capstone of Christianity, the very resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the most significant event in human history. The most significant event because no holy man, no prophet, no guru, no founder of any religion has claimed to have physically died for the sin of the world and then rise again on the third day, this event being prophesied over 2,000 years prior to it occurring no one has done that except for Jesus Christ. Except for Jesus Christ. In fact, if you remember in, in Genesis chapter 22, after God brought Abram out of the Ur of the Chaldees, there was a time when God tested Abram and he said, Abram, take your son, take Isaac, your son, your only son, and take him up to a mountain that I will show you and then sacrifice him there. And Abram, certainly coming from a pagan culture and having heard God bring him out, of, the, of, of that modern-day Iraq and that area and brought him over into modern-day Israel, um, certainly Abram knew that human sacrifice was not something that God was into. In fact, he never ordained it. He never prescribed it. In fact, it was just the opposite. He would supply an animal in the place of a human being because we deserve to die, don't we? And that's what makes the resurrection so wonderful because Jesus did the dying on the cross and he rose again and secured for us that place in heaven that we could never have attained on our good works. We, we, we can't do enough good to deserve heaven. It had to be through Jesus Christ. And so Abram, if you remember, he took Isaac up on the, on the mountain there and we know that that mountain is Mount Moriah, which is the current day temple mount in that area. And he w was attempting to uh, sacrifice his son. And you remember what happened that God intervened right before he was about to do it. See, God knew Abram's heart. He knew that if God told me to do this, this is what I need to do. And he trusted God. And right before he was about to plunge that knife into the heart or into the chest of Isaac, the Lord spoke to him and said, Abram, 
don't go through with this. Stop right now. And, and he looked over and he remember he saw a ram caught in a thicket and he brought the ram and he sacrificed it in its place. But then Abram said something really interesting in verse 14 of Genesis 22. He called the place, the Lord will provide, which means Jehovah Jireh. And, and it, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. What shall be provided? So Abram knew that there was something about this event that he was doing with his son Isaac that was more significant. It was prophetic, actually. And he knew there was something more to this than just uh, what meets the eye. In fact, Abram was able to understand that another father, a couple thousand years into the future from that moment, another father would offer his only son, except this time he would actually go through with it. And in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. What shall be seen? Not only the death, but the resurrection. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, what does the writer of the, uh, the book of Hebrews tell us? It says in verse 17, By faith, Abram, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. And here it is, concluding, that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which also he also received God in a figurative sense. And so Abram understood that there was something more to this event than than what meets the eye. He knew that he was following through on something that was going to take place yet in the future, probably 2,500 years into the future yet, and he was showing this type, if you will. And, And so that's pretty significant. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ is also proof that He was who He said He was. He is the Son of God. He is equal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. What does it say in 1 John chapter 5, verse 7? It says, There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Jesus is equal with God the Father. See, when we think of, uh, we know that the Trinity, there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And you may think to yourself, well, that sounds like three, but really it's one times one times one still equals one, doesn't it? Because uh, they are all the same in character. They are the one in vision. They're the one in heart. And, and they are one. And so Jesus was equal with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. And I love what it says in Romans chapter 1. Paul writing to the Romans, remember he's writing to Christians, and he starts off the letter by saying this in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he had promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared, here it is, and declared to be the Son of God, with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Notice that the resurrection was proof of Jesus' deity. It was proof that he was and is God. And you know, there are some today who think, well, I believe in God, but I don't believe in Jesus Christ. And maybe you're tuning in this morning and you're saying to yourself, well, I believe in God, but I don't necessarily think I need to believe in Jesus Christ. Well, that's, well, that's not what the Bible says. In fact, let me read to you what John the Apostle said in one of his letters. It's in 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. It says this, Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? 
He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. And here's the verse that I want us to see. Whoever denies the Son, take this very carefully, listen. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either, but he who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. And that's really interesting, isn't it? So it's not enough for us just to believe in God. We have to believe in God's salvation because Jesus is the only one who God the Father said, this is my Son and and, and whom I am well pleased. And it's His sacrifice that allows us to have admittance into heaven and for our sins to be forgiven because God the Father, He is just and He is holy. In Colossians 2.9 it says this, For in Him, speaking of Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That means somehow, and that's what they call the mystery of the incarnation, because how is it that a human being can have uh, Jesus being born through Mary? How can the fullness of the Godhead dwell bodily in Him? But that's what the Bible says. That means that He is complete God, 100% God, 100% man. It's the mystery of the incarnation. But praise the Lord that it is that way because Jesus went to that cross for us. And so if Jesus did not rise from the grave and defeat death, having power over it, then what are we doing today? And see, that's important for us to ask. That's an important question for us to ask. Because if He didn't rise from the grave, then what we're doing right now is useless. It's useless. And also, if that is the case, then we have no hope. And we are doomed We are doomed if that is the case, but we know that that is not the case because Jesus did rise from the grave. In fact, and another proof of um, uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is also proof that God the Father accepted the offering of His Son because Jesus, if you remember, was not a martyr. A martyr is somebody whose life is taken from them and therefore they are called a martyr. But Jesus is not a martyr. Jesus willingly gave His life. It says in John chapter 10, Therefore my Father loves me because because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, notice, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. And this this commandment have I received of my Father. And so Jesus was not a martyr. He was not a martyr. And so let's look at our text this morning. Let's look at John chapter 20. Last Friday, just a couple of days ago, we looked at Genesis, I'm sorry, not Genesis, John's Gospel chapter 19. So we're going to continue in here. Let's look at chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Notice it says, Now the first day of the week... Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark, and she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So we know that this is Sunday morning because the first day of the week is Sunday. Even if you look on our calendar, you'll notice that the calendar starts from Sunday through Saturday. And there's a reason for that because Sunday is the first day of the week. And it was the first day of the week that Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Remember, Jesus was crucified on Friday. And Mary Magdalene, this wonderful woman, was uh, someone who was very devoted to Jesus. It was, it was this woman that Jesus had cast out seven demons. And the Bible says that he or she who is forgiven much loves much. And, um, and I know that for myself. I've been forgiven much, and therefore I love Jesus because of what, what he's done for me. And the same was true for Mary Magdalene. 
She loved Jesus so much that she was willing to risk anything uh, for him because of what he had done for her. Now, we're going to just take a moment and go over to um, Matthew's Gospel. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 28 because there's some um, events in Matthew's Gospel of this very account that I want us to look at. Remember that the Gospels, there are four Gospels, and the way that they're written is from different perspectives. And so if you take those four Gospels and you put them together, what you get is a, a, a good composite of of an entire narrative of what happened on that day. But I love what it says in Matthew 28. It says, Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, notice Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, this is not Mary, Jesus' mother, this is another Mary, she came to see, they came to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it, and his countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him, because we know that, that uh, the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they had asked Pilate to put a guard at the tomb so that he couldn't escape. And so that's exactly why these guards are here. The other accounts tell us that. So his countenance was like lightning, his clothes as white as snow, and the guards shook for fear of him, and they became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here. He is risen. Come and see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee which is north of Jerusalem, as you know. And there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Now skip down into verse 11, because something really interesting here, this is one of these uh, proofs of the resurrection. Notice in verse 11, it says, right right around this time, uh, now while they were going, while these two ladies were going to tell the disciples, behold, some of the guard came into the city, and obviously they were very shaken up, because this angel came down and opened the door, And they, seeing the sight, they were completely undone. They were in great fear. They fell to the ground, probably thinking that they were going to die. But now uh, they go into the city and they report to the chief priests all the things that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave notice, a large sum of money, to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while he slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Because those guards were supposed to guard that tomb. And for them to have the subject in that tomb missing, they basically forfeited their life because they didn't do their job. That's just the way it was. But they go to the the authorities, the the Jews, uh, the religious leaders, and they, they, they receive a big sum of money and they're told to tell a lie. And the religious leaders say, hey, we'll cover for you if, uh, if it comes to pass. So let's look, let's go back into John's Gospel, verse 2. Notice that she ran, Mary Magdalene, and she came to Peter. Now, remember, as we look at these Gospels, there's other uh, tidbits of information in the others that form the whole entire account. Okay, and so... There is more than one time that the ladies came to the the tomb, and so they're very excited. This is a really significant thing for them. So she, Mary Magdalene, she ran, she came to Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, who we know is John. 
and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter therefore went, and the other disciple, who was John, and were going to the tomb. And so they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. But notice what Peter did. And then Peter came, followed him, and he went right into the tomb, and he saw the linen clothes lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself separately. Now, I just want to stop there for a minute because this is an important fact of the resurrection. If Jesus' body had indeed been stolen um, with, a, with a, a contingent of guards outside, nobody is going to take the time to uh, wrap him, uh, unwrap him and put his, you know, fold it up in a nice little thing and set it over in the corner. When somebody has, has a guard, a Roman guard out front, they, they're going to go in and grab the body and they're, they're going to grab him and they're going to run. They're not going to take the time. And what this shows us is that even while that stone was closed, what it means in the original language when it says that the cloths were there, the linen cloths, that they literally just passed through because Jesus passed through on his resurrection. He literally passed through those wraps and those spices that he was wrapped in and he took the napkin around his head. A separate piece had been wrapped around his head. He folded that neatly and put it into a place by itself. And, and when, when John and Peter went into the tomb and they saw that, they believed. They believed what Jesus had told them prior to that. Because that is a significant event. Because as they looked upon where Jesus laid, they saw the wraps just kind of collapse in on themselves. And then they saw the other piece wrapped by itself. So that's pretty significant. That means this body that Jesus received, that he was resurrected in, was a very different body than what you and I have right now. And so that is pretty significant. It says in verse 9, For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the grave rise again from the dead. And then the disciples went again away into their own homes, and they became aware. Uh, they, 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 were, they were confused. They were starting to put things together. And can you imagine how you would feel if, if you were in that situation? But notice what it says. But Mary, she stood outside by the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and she looked into the tomb. Now this is after Peter and John had left. And she saw two angels in white sitting at the head and, at the, and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Now, one thing that's interesting about that is in the Old Testament, it talks about the Ark of the Covenant. And it talks about the two angels above the Ark of the Covenant, the cherubim. And what are they doing? They're looking down upon that gold platform on top of that gold um, piece, that gold cover on top of the Ark of the Covenant. It's called the mercy seat. And so these angels are looking down upon that. And this is a wonderful uh, example of what was happening in that tomb. As she went in and looked in the tomb, she saw where Jesus had been, these two angels looking down upon the mercy seat. Because Jesus is the mercy seat. He's the, uh, the, the priests back in the Old Testament, they would go into the Holy of Holies one day a year and they would offer blood on that mercy seat. But now we see that Jesus is the mercy seat, fulfilling that type very perfectly, very wonderfully. So going on in verse 13, it says, Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. So she you know, was very distraught, not knowing what had happened. Now when she had said this, she turned and she saw Jesus standing there, 
and did not know that it was Jesus. Now that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because she had known Jesus, but there was something about his resurrection body that was different. It was it was different enough for her to question whether this was the same one. And we'll look at that a little bit later. So she, uh, so Jesus uh, said to her, Woman, why are you weeping, and whom are you seeking? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Now, can you imagine this woman, just her great love for Jesus? I mean, I don't know how big she was, but I'm sure Jesus was much bigger. And yet her zeal and her heart of love for him was so great. She was like, you just show me where you laid him, and I'll go take him. I'll go put him over my shoulder, and I'll, I'll take him. And uh, that's how much she loved him. And, you know, that's, that's really uh, touching if you think of it. You know, do you love Jesus that much that you'd be willing to do anything for him? You know, especially for what he's done for us. Uh, you know, it's a good question for us to ask. And what Jesus really wants from us more than anything, he doesn't care about money. I mean, you need money to operate things. But what he really wants is your heart. He wants our hearts. That's the thing that Jesus wants. He wants you. He wants me. And so she turned, verse 16, or Jesus said to her, Mary, and certainly his voice uh, telling her name, she knew exactly who it was. She turned and she said, Rabboni, which, which is to say teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and to your God. So Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Now, let me just say this. You know, if Jesus died on the cross but did not rise from the grave, he and the old prophets of the Old Testament, as they had said, our profession of faith is baseless, right? We, we looked at that in the very beginning. But it's not the case. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, what did Paul say? He said, If in this life we only have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. In other words, we're the most miserable. If Jesus didn't rise from the grave, then we are to be pitied because we are still in our sins, we have no hope, and we are doomed. I remember sharing that in the beginning. And then Paul would say, if, if the dead do not rise, then let us drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. You know, isn't that true? If, if he didn't rise from the grave, as, as the scriptures tell us, we might as well go out and have a good time, because this is it. This is all we have on this earth. But we know that that's not the case. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to look at a handful of verses there. This chapter is very significant because it talks to us about the resurrection and it also talks to us, as we'll see later on, the, the reality and what kind of body we're going to have. But in 1 Corinthians 15, let's look at the first uh, eight verses first. 1 Corinthians 15. We'll come back to John's Gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, the very first verse, Paul says to them, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, 
and that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and as He was seen by Cephas, who was Peter, then by the twelve, after that He was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep or have passed away. After that, he was seen by James and then all of the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. So Paul is uh, confessing and professing what the scriptures had said. Now look with me at verse 12 of that same chapter. And this is what I was sharing earlier, and this is uh, important for us to understand. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, then how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are also found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he did raise Jesus up from the grave. Whom, if he did not rise up, and, and, and um, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. There's no hope for them if that is the case. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of men most pitiable. But notice what he says in verse 20. But now Christ is risen. He has risen from the grave and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Do you understand? If we all died in Adam because of our sin, we are all, uh, for those who give their heart to Christ, they can be made alive in Christ. Then comes, uh, let me see. Got my place lost there. Verse 23. But each one in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Afterwards, those who are Christ at his coming, because Jesus is already raised from the grave. Afterward, those who are Christ at his coming, that's going to be you and I. And then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. What an amazing uh, passage, isn't it? Turn with me, or actually let me read something to you. There's some um, Old Testament prophecies that speak of Jesus' resurrection. And we're just going to look at a few of these. One a little bit longer. But in Job, if you remember, uh, Job is speaking concerning his trust in God. And Job is one of the oldest books in the Bible, actually. In Job chapter 19, what does it say? Job says, For I know that my Redeemer lives. After all that Job had gone through and all the pain and the agony of losing his family and then finally losing his health and on the verge of death, on the verge of death, and then the Lord allowing him to be tested uh, for his faith, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my flesh I shall see God. 
whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Isn't that a wonderful verse? Job 19, verse 25 through 27. And so Job knew that this was not it. Once his body perished, he knew that there was a resurrection coming. He knew that there was a resurrection coming. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 16. We're going to look at this. We're going to spend a little more time in this psalm. This is what they call a prophetic psalm. It's a messianic psalm. Psalm 16 is a wonderful one. We're going to read through the whole entire psalm. It's not very long, but we're going to park when we get to verses 9 through 11. We're going to take a look at that. So look at Psalm 16 with me. It's a psalm of David. And he says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, You are my Lord, and my goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight, and their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. O Lord, you are my portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. I have heard the Lord, I'm sorry, I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand and I shall not be moved. I shall not be moved. Therefore, verse 9, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also shall rest in hope. Now, I would have you take a look at, we're going to look at verses 9 through 11 because each one of these speaks of his his death, his resurrection, and finally his ascension. Verse 9, 10, and 11. So, 9, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also shall rest in hope, for you will not suffer or leave my soul in the grave or Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Verse 11, You will show me the path of life, and in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Look at verse 9 with me again because this really speaks of what we just celebrated two days ago. It speaks of Jesus' crucifixion, his death. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also shall rest in hope. Yes, he's going to be in the grave. It's going to rest, but it's going to rest in hope because there's something more coming afterwards. See, David, as he was writing this, he was prophesying of events that probably were a little cloudy to him, but through the Spirit of God, he was talking about things that he probably didn't have the understanding of, but were going to come to pass. And certainly this one, David had this hope as well, and he had this assurance, but that he would be resurrected as well. But David right now is in Jerusalem in a tomb, and he is nothing more than dust. So this couldn't be speaking of David himself, but Jesus Christ, that his flesh would rest, but rest in hope. And notice in verse 10, For you will not leave my soul in the grave. You will not leave my soul in Sheol. Jesus didn't stay in the grave. He was only there for three days. His body hadn't even began the process of decomposition as All bodies do when they die. But he did not see corruption. He wasn't there but for only three days. And what about verse 11? You will show me the path of life, and in your presence is fullness of joy. Notice that. You will show me the path of life. After all of that, you're still going to show me the path of life. And get this, in your presence, so 
the author, uh, David, knew that this person who had died was going to be resurrected again, that he would be in the presence of the fullness of joy, in the very presence of God. And notice what he says in the, fi the final phrase of that verse, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So David knew that not only for himself that he would uh, stand before the Lord one day, but this was also prophesying of Jesus's resurrection. Because what did Jesus say when he ascended? He said, I, I go, um, and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. When he ascended, 40 days after his resurrection, he ascended to the Father, and he sat at his right hand. Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. And this is the Old Testament. This is a psalm that was written nearly a thousand years prior to this. Turn with me to Isaiah 53. We're going to read Isaiah 53 uh, in its entirety. And I'd like for you to look at something. We looked at this Friday night in Isaiah 53. And we're going to see that the very first nine verses of this Again, Isaiah writing this about 700 years before Jesus was born in the flesh. But the first nine verses speak of his crucifixion, and then the remainder of the chapter, 10 through 12, speak of his, uh, his resurrection. Let's, let's read. Um, actually, you know what? Let's just get right to, for the sake of time, you can read verses 1 through 9 on your own, but notice that it talks about his death in, in, in pretty good detail. But in verse 10, it says this, and verses 10 through 12 speak of his resurrection. Let's look at it. It says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It's speaking about Jesus on the cross. Now, if you read verses 1 through 9, it is very uh, poignant. But yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, to crush him. He has put him, God the Father has put his son to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin or an atonement for sin. He shall see his seed and he shall prolong his days. So this one who has died is going to have his days prolonged. That's what it's saying. So it's speaking very clearly of the resurrection here, that this one who, this suffering servant was not only going to die, but he was going to have a prolongation of days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now notice the rest of verse 11 and 12. It really speaks of yet the future, doesn't it? He shall see the labor of his soul and be... And, and be satisfied, by his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many. So God, speaking of Jesus, his righteous servant, he's going to justify many. He's going to justify many, something yet future. And he did that on the cross um, from, from this perspective. For he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. What did Jesus say when he arose? It says that he says, "I will." He told his disciples, "He says, uh, let not your heart be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and that where I am, you might also be." And Jesus also said that he would intercede for us, and he's interceding on our behalf even right now, as he is in glory and we are here on the earth. But what, what was Jesus' testimony concerning his death and resurrection? At least three times Jesus spoke to his disciples, and again, like a good shepherd, as these men who had been following him had given up their livelihood really to follow him for three and a half years, they had given everything. And, and certainly 
now he was going to depart from the scene. And what does a good shepherd do? He prepares in advance. That's what a shepherd does. Even a shepherd to this day who is shepherding sheep, he will go into the field and he will look for any poisonous berries, shrubs, anything in that field that might hurt the sheep. Because a sheep, sheep will eat anything. You can put um, uh, paper towels out there with uh, uh, and water them down and the sheep will eat those paper towels. They'll eat anything. <laughs> and so the shepherd has to take special care on where he takes them because of what they're going to eat. And is there a water source nearby? But Jesus is the good shepherd. He tells his the guys who are with him that had put their faith and their trust in him. He tells them in advance at least three times, even more I'm, I, I would be willing to believe. But one of those was in Matthew 16, verse 21. Jesus said of himself concerning his res, uh, crucifixion and resurrection. So this is Matthew 16, verse 21. So it says that from that time, and I'll just read these to you, Jesus began to show his, his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, he must suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. This was something that was known to Jesus. He knew that he wasn't going to be in the grave for very long. He knew that he would rise again. And you can look at Matthew 17, verse 22, and also Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 17, he said the same thing. In fact, let me read to you that final one in Matthew chapter 20, because this one, he even gets more specific. He talks about specifically how he was going to die. Because the mode of capital punishment for the Jew was stoning. But this signified something different, because the Romans, they didn't believe in stoning for capital punishment. Their method of death of capital punishment was crucifixion. And so Jesus knew that it wasn't going to be the Jews so much that would cast stones at him, but he knew that ultimately he would be in the hand of the Romans who would, sacri- or who would crucify him. Notice in Matthew 20, verse 17, it says, Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And this is right before he would make his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. Notice, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to who? To the Gentiles to mock and to scourge him and to crucify him. And the third day he will rise again. I don't know about you, but that's pretty interesting. You know, the fact that Jesus has that, of course he has that knowledge because he inspired the prophets. He inspired David to write Psalm 22. He inspired Isaiah to write um, Isaiah 53. He inspired all those prophets. But what are some of the proofs of the resurrection? You know, there has to be proof for something to have happened. We know that the stone being rolled away is a proof. And the grave clothes folded by themselves as we looked at before and, and just having the wraps collapsing and the napkin wrapped by itself, that is a proof right there. Because somebody, if somebody had stolen the body, they wouldn't take the time to do those things, especially with a guard out front. Another thing is you've heard of the Shroud of Turin. The Shroud of Turin is, is not the Shroud of Jesus. And I know that for a fact because as we look at as we just looked at here in John chapter 20, uh, uh, there's two different pieces. There, there, were, there were different strips of cloth that Jesus was wrapped in and the spices, and then there was a separate bandage on his head. But the Shroud of Turin is a 14, 14, uh, uh, 14 feet long and 4 feet across. 
It's, it's one single piece. And it's supposed to have this image of Christ on it. That It's not true. It's not Him. What, whoever that is, it's not Jesus. They may have been crucified, but it's not Jesus. And so that shroud of Turin is not the shroud that Jesus was buried in. So don't, you can look at the Word of God and you can look at the physical description of that shroud and there, there's a problem. And it's very easy. Believe what the Word of God says, not what anybody tells you. So, so there was one proof. And also the guards guarding the tomb. If they were guarding the tomb, they weren't about to let anybody get into that tomb because their very lives would be forfeit if they had allowed anybody to get into that tomb. It would take an angel of God to come down and cause an earthquake and to, for the stone to be rolled away. Not so that Jesus could get out because he had already left. Do you understand that? That stone was rolled away, not so that Jesus could get out, but that so that we could get in, that Peter and John and Mary, they could go in and they could look and they could see that indeed he has risen from the grave. Does that make sense? Because that's important to understand. Uh, the angel didn't need to roll away the stone so that Jesus could come out. He had already left. He was able in this new resurrection body to not only pass through those wraps, but to pass through the stone that was actually keeping him inside in his resurrection body. That is a proof. Also, we just read it in 1 Corinthians 15. He was seen not only by all these people, and even 500 at once he was seen. And not only that, but he remained on the earth for 40 days. After his resurrection, what does the Bible tell us? That he was seen by people for 40 days before he ascended into heaven. And what were some of the other things that happened? The miracles that occurred upon his resurrection and upon his crucifixion, actually. The temple veil. This, this temple veil was very thick. It wasn't just a piece of paper or a small piece of cloth. These were cloths that were woven together to form one single tapestry going down, and it was pretty thick. And it was torn, and it was very tall, and it was torn from the top to the bottom, signifying God just ripping that, that thing and saying, Now the way to the Holy of Holies is made possible by my Son, Jesus Christ. There's no longer any uh, ritual that we have to go through. There's no more sacrificing of animals. Now, because of what He has done, we have full access to the throne of God. I mean, that to me is one of the greatest things about the resurrection, is that we no longer have to go through this, um, these rituals and stuff like that. And, and the way has been paid in full for us so that we can enter in boldly not based on our works again, but based upon what Jesus has done. Plus, there was an earthquake. There was an earthquake. And even in Matthew's Gospel, it says that even those who had died had rose from the grave as a, uh, as a sign of His resurrection, of how significant this event was. But when we look at Jesus when He was resurrected, there were certain things about His body that were very unique. Uh, the, the first one is that He was able to appear and disappear at will. Remember, in the book of Acts, uh, even in the end of the gospel, uh, it says that while they were assembled, uh, and, and this is in the uh, John's gospel, chapter 20, um, in verses 19 and 20, it talks about they, they were assembled after he uh, rose. Uh, they were assembled in, in a room for fear of the Jews because now everybody's thinking they probably stole the body, so now they're in fear. And Jesus, when the doors are locked, he appears in the room with them. And so there's something about this resurrection body that is significant. Uh, he can appear and disappear. And he did. He, he just appeared before them, and they thought that they had seen a ghost. But remember what Jesus said. He says, look at my hands. 
You know, look at my wrists where they drove those Roman nails. Look at my head where they plated the crown of thorns on my head. Look at my side. Look at my feet. And notice, stick your hand in my wound in my side. See that it is me. This is a body that can withstand eternity, and it never dies. It never gets sick. And it even has, Jesus evidently was able to change uh, his appearance somewhat uh, to appear differently to different people because there's enough of, uh, there's some scriptures that talk about those things happening where they weren't really sure if it was Jesus or not. So there was something a little bit different about this body of his, even though he bore the marks of the crucifixion. So having said that, you know, we understand what his body was like, but what about ours? What happens to us? And see, this is what makes uh, Christianity so wonderful because just as Jesus was crucified and just as he was risen from the grave, so we too will receive a resurrection body. Turn with me again to 1 Corinthians 15. Again, we've spent a lot of time in this chapter and it is really significant. And we're going to look at verses 35 through 49. And let's take a look at that right now. 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 49, because it talks about this glorious body that Jesus received that we also will receive when we are resurrected at the rapture of the church. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35, it says, But someone will say, Paul tells the Corinthians, How are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? Do they come? And that's a very good question. But Paul says, Foolish one, what you sow is not, is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But notice, but God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. And he goes on and he talks about uh, that all flesh is not the same. There is some uh, flesh of birds. There's a flesh of animals. There's, a, uh, there's uh, other flesh of animals. And even the bodies, you know, the, the things in the heavens, you know, there, there's, there's celestial bodies like what we have. And there's also, I'm sorry, we don't have celestial bodies yet. Looking forward to that day. But there are celestial bodies and there are terrestrial bodies. We all have terrestrial bodies. We, we came from the earth. But Paul is drawing a distinction between our natural bodies and the bodies that we're going to receive, the very body that Jesus received as well. He said in verse 40, But there are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is sown in corruption, and it is raised in incorruption. So we were born in sin, but we are going to be raised incorruptible. Notice verse 43. It is sown in dishonor, but it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, but it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, which is what we have now, but it is raised a spiritual body, the same body that Jesus received. We're going to receive something exactly like that, we believe. There is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spirit is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. 
and was the man um, and is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Do you understand what that's saying? One day we are going to be resurrected and we are going to have the same, same body. And so this is a really significant chapter for us to be looking at. But what about our responsibility now? Uh, for those of us, I, I pray that every one of you who are tuning in this morning know Jesus Christ. You know, because we've looked at the, uh, the account here in the Bible. We've looked at some Old Testament prophecies concerning Jesus' resurrection. And we've looked at what Jesus said about himself. We looked at some of the qualities of that body. But once, but what, what, what are you doing with that, with that, all that information? See, if we just have it up here, it's, it's really meaningless. But now it's important, especially if you've given your heart to Christ, how are we to live now in this body, having the Spirit of God in us? What do we do now? What do we do now? Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. This is a significant portion. What are we to do now? Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And, and that's a good question to ask. Even and, and Paul here is writing to the Roman Christians, Roman believers. What shall we say then? Shall we continue now in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we... Who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many as who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And there is the command really for us. So what are we going to do with this? We should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing that our old man was crucified with him, this old nature was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. And are you a slave of sin today? You know, is, is there something in your life that is just keeping you from enjoying your relationship with the Lord? Is there something that you know that you're doing that is wrong? You know, it's never too late to confess that and to ask Jesus to come into your heart if you've never received him. And if you're a Christian and you know that you're doing things that you ought not to do, today is a good day to, to live in that newness of life. Don't let the old grave clothes of that old nature still hang on you. Tear them off because it's something that we have to do. Jesus has made the provision for it. Now we have to walk in it. And he even gives us the strength and the grace and everything we need to accomplish it. But we need to be active in it. We can't just sit back and think that, oh, he's going to do everything for me. He's done everything for you, but there's a part that you have to do as well. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. Verse 10, For the death that he died, he died to sin. Notice, once and for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. So here's the a command again. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And see, that's what we need to do. He doesn't expect us to go to the cross and die. He did that for us. 
But what he does expect us now to do is to turn away from those things. And notice in verse 12, he says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourself to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. And see, that is a a significant thing for us to consider. We need to consider these things. Because see, one of the greatest proofs of the new life, the new birth, is a life that has been crucified and a life that has been made right by God, by the working of the Spirit of God in us. And so that is the greatest proof is a life that has changed. I know that happened to me when I was 24 years old. And I pray that that's happened to all of you. And some of you who may be listening or watching this morning, if if that hasn't occurred, uh, make today that that time. You know, make, make the choice today for Jesus. Don't put it off another day. You don't have, tomorrow is not guaranteed. And we have today to deal with. Today is the day of salvation. I would encourage you to make that, to make that choice today uh, for Jesus because He's done everything for you. And you know what? He loves you and He loves me in spite of everything that I have, every filthy thought that I've thought, every filthy thing that I've ever done. No matter what I've done, I know that I've been forgiven because I've confessed all those things and um, Jesus loves you and He loves me. In, in 1 Peter chapter 1, Verse 13, Peter also tells us something similar. He says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, because in the mind is really where the battle is for most of us. Gird up the loins of your mind and be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice, as obedient children, not conforming yourself to the former lusts as in your ignorance. Right? Because God is holy. That's what it says going down. He is holy. So God says, be holy for I am holy. Right? Knowing, verse 18, that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. But notice, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And so that's what we need to give our hearts completely to, to give it to. And we are to put off all those things of our old man. Our old man just speaks of that old nature, that old nature of ours. We're to put those things off. All the lust, all the greed, all the anger, the hatred, the wrath, all those things. Will you put those things off? Even as a Christian, you know, just because we're Christians doesn't mean that we're perfect right now. Um, We still have um, this process that the Bible calls uh, sanctification. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, I believe it says, that this is the will of God, your sanctification. That means it's a process. It takes time. Would to God that when we gave our heart to the Lord that we were just squeaky clean and we were perfect. Uh, but how would we relate to everybody else? Everyone would look around at us and, um, and we'd probably be puffed up in pride. But you know, one of the things that happens as a believer is I'm very much aware of my sin. I know that I've been forgiven and I continue to turn away from those things and you need to do the same as well. Make the, make the decision today to make the resurrection of Christ the most, um, most effective by living the life that He died to give you. That's really as simple as it gets. 
You know, let's not spurn what He has done. If He's given us this new life, let's embrace it with everything that we have. Let's embrace it and say, Lord, consume me by Your Spirit. Have everything You want to do in me. I'm not afraid, Lord, of whatever You want to do in me. Do it and help me to surrender. Help me to surrender and give You everything. And He may not cause you to give everything, but our hearts ought to be such where we're like, Lord, anything in my life, And this is what most people are afraid of. They think that God is here to destroy your fun or to destroy your life. Quite the opposite, actually. He wants to give you life and life more abundant. And uh, it's a wonderful life. It's a wonderful, glorious life. Finally, there is a resurrection for us. We, we, we looked at uh, some of it already in 1 Corinthians 15, but we're going to end here in just a few moments. There is a resurrection for the just and for the unjust. Every single person in the world is going to be resurrected, and it's just a question of where is my destination? Am I going to be resurrected to everlasting life, or am I going to be resurrected to everlasting contempt? Because the Bible teaches, and and Jesus tells us, that these are two different places, and we have to make that decision. We have to make that decision. Notice with me, and uh, let me just read this to you, but you might want to write down the reference. It's John chapter 5, verses 24 through 29. John 5, verses 24 through 29. Jesus is speaking, and let me read it to you. He says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who has sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment and has passed from death to life. Isn't that wonderful? That's good news. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him, notice, God the Father has given Jesus, he's given him all authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And in verse 28 he says, do not marvel at this. For the hour is coming, which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So there are there are two different camps and it's it's healthy for us on a day like today to answer the question, where am I going? You can know for sure where you're going. There, There doesn't have to be any questioning in it in your heart. I believe the Bible teaches assurance of salvation. You can know that you're going to heaven. But you know you're going to heaven not based upon any good work that you do. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, right? And, there, and, and so there, there's nothing within me that can, that I, anything I can do to earn it. I have to believe on the one whom God has said is his salvation. I have to believe in him. Now, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, because this is where the resurrection, one of the resurrections, there's a, when we think of the resurrection, there's waves of resurrection. Jesus was the first, but we know that he's coming back for the church anytime soon, and it could be any day. Any day. It could be before we're done with the service, and I hope that that occurs. The only thing that I would be remiss of is that there's uh, people in uh, family and friends and, and others in my in, you know, um, extended family that I want to know Jesus 
because this is important. But this is the resurrection right here, one of them, for the church anyway, when Jesus returns. Look with me at 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 13. He says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. Paul now writing to the Thessalonians concerning those who have fallen asleep. In other words, those who have died. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For we also say to you, notice, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Now he's talking about not the second coming physically to the earth, but he's talking about Jesus coming for the church in the rapture. Because we meet him in the clouds. When Jesus comes back the second time, he's coming physically to the earth to set up his temple in Jerusalem for a thousand years. And we will come back with him at that time. There's a lot to this, but just suffice it to say, when Jesus comes back for the church, he's not coming to the earth. We're going to meet him in the air. Notice what it says. For the Lord himself, verse 16, will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And notice, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together. We will be snatched up off of this earth together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So do you see the difference there? We're going to be transformed. The dead are going to rise first. They are going to receive their new resurrection body that we looked at in 1 Corinthians 15. They're going to receive their new body. And then we who are alive and remain, we're, are, we're going to be transformed. This old body, this body that we have now will be transformed, will be given a new body, and will be taken up, will meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. And I love how Paul says it, therefore comfort one another with these words. Comfort yourselves with these words. Is that a comfort to you or does that sound like something that's really scary? If you know Jesus, this is our blessed hope. This is what we are looking forward to. Because the Bible says that after the church is removed, there is going to be a period of time called Jacob's Trouble. Some know it as the Great Tribulation Period. A seven-year period that is going to be horrific. God is, will be pouring out His judgment upon an earth that has rejected Him. And then at the end of that time period, God, Jesus Christ is coming back. I would encourage you to look again at Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, because at the end of that tribulation period, Jesus physically comes back to the earth, and guess who's coming back with him? All those in heaven, all those who previously had been raised from the dead and those whose bodies had been changed in the twinkling of an eye. Read the rest of 1 Corinthians 15, because it says that when we hear that trump of God, in a twinkling of an eye, it's going to be happen immediately that we will be changed and caught up to meet with Him in the air. And see, that is the resurrection. That is what we are looking forward to next. And the world is being prepared right now. The world is being prepared, and the church is going to be leaving this earth very soon. We don't know the day or the hour, um, but we know that it's coming. We've been waiting for it for a long time, and there have been people mocking us for centuries because uh, Paul and the apostles... Uh, in the first century after Jesus uh, was crucified and he ascended into heaven, they believed that even in their lifetime that Jesus was coming. But there were things that were written in the New Testament, things even in the Old Testament that haven't come to pass yet. 
They are coming to pass before our eyes. What did Jesus say in Matthew 24? He says that before he comes back in his second coming, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. Do you understand that there's been more? There's famine going on right now in, 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 um, in Africa and pestilences. We're going through one right now where the whole world is quarantined. And so... Uh, and the earthquakes, they're increasing in intensity like a woman going through labor pains. That's what he said would happen before he would come. And so we have to look at these facts that are right before our eyes and we have to decide, well, is this just a bunch of nonsense? Or is what Jesus is saying real? Well, he never lied to us. Everything that he said before would come to pass has come to pass. And there's still yet things before us. So make the decision. Read the Bible. We looked at some of the things today. And these things are important. Know why you believe and whom you believe. And read what the Bible says. Don't even believe what I'm telling you. Read what the Bible says. Because there's a lot of people watching YouTube, listening to all kinds of crazy things, crazy doctrines. Everything is right here. You can find it in here, but are you reading it? We have to be students of the Word of God, and I hope that you've given your heart to Jesus. It's so important today, more than ever, to give your heart to Jesus. So would you consider that today? Um, you know, so as we, um, as we pray here, I would just encourage you to make that decision in your own heart. Make the decision today. Make the decision today. Don't put it off till tomorrow. You know, there was... A lot of people think that we have more time. One of the great deceptions of life is that we think that we have time. I remember when I was a 13-year-old living on Pine Island, I thought I had all the time in the world. And thank God he's given me, um, so far, I'm 50 years old, he's given me this time to live and to, to discover who he is. But I had no idea whether my next day was going to be my last day. I thought I would live forever. I was 13 with my hair on fire. And we have this uh, hope, and, and, and because we haven't died, we think that tomorrow is going to be the same, and the day after that, and the day after that. Well, a few years ago, there was a, a four or five teenage girls from Fairport that had just graduated high school. They were all in the prime of their life, all young teens. They were on their way to Canisius Lake, I think, or um, um, one of those Finger Lakes, to celebrate their graduation, and they, got, they were in an accident. And all, all of them had perished. All of them had died. They had no idea that morning when they woke up that they were going, their life was going to end. And see, you and I don't have that luxury either. We don't know. And so this is not a time for us to think that we have several years or even tomorrow. Yes, it's kind of uh, sobering to, to think about, but really think about what we read this morning what we looked at. Jesus is your only hope. Is there any hope in the government? <laughs> I mean, uh, is there any hope in anything that's going on? Ultimate hope? No, the ultimate hope is Jesus in your heart and Jesus coming to take you and to spend an eternity with Him. Do you want to be with Him or do you want to be separated in, uh, in hell and everlasting contempt and everlasting condemnation? Because that's the choice that we have to make today. So please, Make the resurrection of Jesus Christ count for you by giving your heart to Him because he's, do, he's done everything for you. And all we have to do is believe by faith and just trust Him and ask Him. And you know what? He is so kind. He's so compassionate. 
He's not looking at you with judgmental eyes. You know why I can say that? Because he's already paid, he's already put the judgment that you and I receive, all of us collectively, on his son at the cross. Isn't that what we just talked about? So there's no need for him to be browbeating you. There's no need for him to be squashing you and making you feel uh, horrible about yourself. Uh, there's a certain part of me that I need to come to grips with my own self. I have to be remorseful over my sin. But hopefully that will lead me into the arms of Jesus. He's already done the punishment. He wants you to live now. So give your heart to him. Don't wait for tomorrow. You don't have tomorrow. You may not have tomorrow. I hope you do. But we're not guaranteed. So let's pray and give thanks to him. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the resurrection, Jesus. We thank you for the life that you've given us, Lord. We pray that every one of us, Lord, for those who don't know you, that, we would, that they would give their heart to you today. And for those of us who do know you, Father, that we would mature in our faith. And that, Lord, we would really examine ourselves, especially at this time in history, in our country, in this world. Lord, that we would examine ourselves very thoroughly. And, Lord, that we'd be very quick, as, as many other scriptures we could have gotten into, today, Lord. You, you call us to put off those old things, to put away the, the lust and the wrath and the, the malice and the anger and lying and cheating and stealing. Lord, all these things, to put off those things and to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pray for that. We pray that, that Lord, your church, myself included, Lord, that we would examine ourselves and draw closer to you and we pray for those who don't know you that today would be the day. So, Father, have your way with us and bless your church. Bless those who are listening today, perhaps for the very first time, really coming into an understanding of this concept. And, uh, and so we just give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.